1: You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. I hope you're doing fine out there in Lepland. Here's my introduction to part two of this double episode. Now, I could have made this introduction much shorter. I wrote this this morning, and I could have made this a lot shorter, probably, but I haven't. And that's for two reasons. The first reason is because context is really important and it can help you understand what you're going to hear. And obviously, this is a show for learners of English. And I want—I I like to present sort of natural conversations. Sometimes they can be difficult to follow if English isn't your first language. So I provide a bit of context at the start to help you. So that's the first reason this introduction is quite long. And the second reason I chose to keep this long is because... I just want to prove that I didn't use ChatGPT to write this, okay? This was written by me, a human being, as far as I know. So, let's go. So, this is the second part of a double episode. You should probably listen to part one of this first. That should be the episode I published directly before this one. And you'll find a link to it in the description, okay? So, just a reminder of the concept for this double episode. My guest is Anthony Rattuno who's an English teacher, life coach, and podcaster. One of Anthony's podcasts is called Life and Life Only. And in his episodes, he talks about a wide variety of interesting topics. It's a mix of personal development, social commentary, philosophy, psychology, and more. The topics Anthony covers are quite diverse, but the overall theme, as I understand it, is about finding truth and meaning in our lives – That's inner truth, sort of understanding yourself, and outer truth, understanding the world around you. And I was listening to episode 37 the other day, and I thought to myself, this is good. This is good stuff. I should invite Anthony onto my podcast to talk about some of these things. I find it all very interesting. Maybe my audience will find it interesting too. And maybe I can spread the word about Anthony's podcast a bit as well. So that's what's happening here. So this is what I hope will be interesting content to help you get more English listening practice into your everyday life. In the first part, we talked about cats, the Titanic, travelling, teaching English and life coaching. And in this part, the plan is to talk about some other things that Anthony has covered in episodes of his podcast. Namely, David Blaine, the illusionist and endurance artist and some of the incredible stunts and endurance feats he's done over the years. Uh, Food and our relationships to eating and dieting. Favourite films, including the mysterious and fascinating work of Stanley Kubrick. And conspiracy theories, especially what that term really means. Comedy and how it can reveal quite profound truths about things. And happiness. What is it? Uh, where is it? How can we find it? What does it look like? What does it smell like? Maybe not what it's what does it smell like, but anyway, happiness so that's quite a heavy and diverse selection of topics to deal with. Hopefully, we'll be able to do more than just skim the surface of each one. um Each topic does deserve a whole episode of its own, and of course, that's what Anthony has already done. There are episodes all about all of those things in life and life only. So if you want a more thorough discussion of each topic, listen to the Life and Life Only podcast. Links are in the description or on the page for this episode on my website. Okay? So that's it. The introduction is finished. We made it. Um let's say hello to Anthony. Hello Anthony.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me back.
1: Yeah, you still awake after that? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm currently uh, in case your listeners are wondering why I've lost so much weight since part 1. Uh, and got and got that slightly post illness, derry eyed look. Yeah, I have just been ill, so um, yeah, I have been on some health farms yeah. since part one. Really. Yeah, it's
1: it's 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 been um it's been like two weeks, I think, since we recorded part one. Hmm. Okay, so it's been it's it's like f- I think for the the listeners, it's going to be one week between part one being published and part two being published. But there's in in our world, it's been about two weeks, hmm. and I I look healthier than I did. Uh, two weeks ago, and you you look slightly less healthy, or you're certainly thinner. Yeah. So, what's what I, for for me? I just had a week of holiday um, at the seaside, which was lovely. But what about you? What what has happened to you over the last two weeks?
2: Uh, I've just had my first uh, COVID holiday, you might call it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the only member of my family who hadn't had uh, COVID, and then I was uh, but. Yeah, about a couple of weeks ago, ten days ago, I was going through one of those periods where I wasn't having any rest at all, and I was—I uh, kind of knew something was brewing—and <laughs> I um, just woke up feeling like death warmed up, as we might say in England. And um after, I thought I had tonsillitis because I used to get that quite a lot when I was a smoker, but I'm not a smoker now. But thought I had that, and then I did a did a test and found I had COVID. And yeah, it was about. Five pretty uh, hideous days, but pretty surreal as well. But I always try yeah. and uh, look forward a bit or think fo- in a forward way. And I always think that wh- the times when I'm ill is the only time when I ever actually properly rest, in fact, and uh, do nothing, which for me generally means, I don't know, reading a book or something. <laughs> that's, my, that's my doing nothing. Um but then you do feel uh, a little bit cleansed because uh, I, I didn't eat for a week. I didn't eat anything other than yogurt and uh, fruit. And like I said, I did lose a bit of weight suddenly on my clothes fit, which is a nice bonus. Um, but yeah, I, it's not not the best way to achieve that. But uh, I do come out of it feeling quite calm because I have actually slowed down and properly relaxed. So now I'm feeling all right. I've got a bit of a cold, but yeah, doing
1: all right. It's It's really nice when you come out of an illness like that. Obviously, going through it is horrible. I mean, I had flu, <clears throat> I had flu um, in December, and that was just awful. Like a proper case of real flu, not just the sort of, oh, I had a bit of flu. Mm. Like it was the, the genuine article, and that was just absolutely horrible. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a hideous experience. You go through hell, and then when you start to feel better, oh, that's nice. Mm. When you sort of like start – you kind of rub your eyes and emerge blinking into the light – uh, the, you know, you start to feel human again. And yeah, so yeah, you have lost a bit of weight between mm-hmm. part one and part two mm-hmm. <laughs> of this. Uh, so co- yeah, catching COVID in 2023. I mean, that's, um, a bit late. I don't know. It's a bit late, isn't it? Yeah, yeah a bit late to the game on that one.
2: I, I don't know. That tends to happen with me. I don't know. I tend to I tend to be a bit slow in that regard. Like I suddenly <laughs> catch up with trends that were going about three years ago. But yeah. uh, I really did get, um, I think it's a wake up call as well, because I was really hammering it with a new job and all the teaching and the podcasting and everything. And it was just, wasn't having any rest at all. I mean, mm. yeah, a little bit, mm. but it was a good wake up call, I think. Got to listen to your body.
1: Burning the candle at both ends. Oh. Yeah. Listen to your body. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. So are you ready to get stuck into some topics? Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, so the first item on my list this time is uh, David Blaine, mm. right? So probably what we should do f- first is make sure everyone knows who David Blaine is. Um, who is he? Uh, could, you know, could you describe who he is with the, you know, with the sort of international audience in mind? I wonder if everyone out there in the world is familiar with David Blaine. I think he's probably internationally famous. I
2: feel like he would be. uh, I mean, his job title would traditionally have been magician, although people tend to call him an illusionist, which is obviously along the same lines. It's funny that um, a lot of the time in America and Britain, you'll have these uh, more or less equivalents. And in England, of course, we have Darren Brown, um, who's obviously Mm. still around. The difference yeah. is, that Darren Brown seems much more of an introvert, and well, actually, maybe Blaine seemed an introvert as well. He, he sort of had a kind of brooding intensity about him. But um yeah, he became famous in the late '90s for street magic, and the idea was that instead of being, you know, in a studio and you get someone to sit down and do a card trick, he'd go out in the street, and the thing that he tapped into, I think, was that. Um, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever race you are. Doesn't young or old, rich or poor, you more or less have the same reaction when someone does some magic. Which is actually that you start laughing. I don't know if you have found that. You get, you know, mm. you laugh just because it's kind of nice, you know, seeing someone do something. You go, oh, me, how did he do that? So yeah. he, he does. Uh, he used to do card tricks and things like that, but then he branched out and he'd make things disappear. And, and obviously, you know, you can be a bit sceptical about all that. I don't think him or Darren Brower is ever claiming that they're actually tapped into magic from some other place. They're just very, very skillful. But the interesting thing about David Blaine is that at some point, um, I think also in the late 90s, he decided that he wanted to test himself and do endurance stunts. Now, of course, the problem is that as soon as you start doing them, everyone's going to go, oh, right, that's a magic trick. You know, you didn't really bury yourself alive. The first one he did, he buried himself alive in a in a coffin, and they actually had um some uh, – he was actually visible as well. They had some water between the coffin and what people could see so people could actually view it. And I actually think – I think it was genuine. I think he was testing the limits because he was one of those people as well. He said from a young age, he was a very strange kid. He'd do things like, you know, shut himself in a closet or whatever. Just To test himself, just to see how long he could stand it, and uh, he would not eat, and things like that, and uh, so then he, he started this parallel uh, career, I suppose of what he would call performance art. The general idea being performance art is that the performer doesn 't necessarily do a lot; they 're just in a place, and the art comes from the way that people react to what they do so um yes, yeah, so he sort of had Darren and David at. at Around the same time on different sides of the Atlantic, um, mm-hmm. doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's sort of magic, uh, modern magic, I suppose. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yes, definitely. Mm. So, shall we talk about? I mean, I, okay, just I, I guess, um, yeah, David Blaine's first became famous, yeah, doing magic in the street, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, And he would, yeah, this mysterious aura, he'd be like, look at this, let me show you something, let me just try something, Mm -hmm. look, look, and um, he'd be doing these wild, amazing feats of illusion, and then people kind of like, yeah, losing their mind in the street and stuff, Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and then he started doing these endurance feats, so when we say endurance, we're talking about sort of being able to kind of do something really difficult for a very long time. So that includes being shut in one small space for a long time or holding your breath, you know, um, like holding your breath underwater for a very long time, standing on the top of a a very tall pillar for a very, very long time. Um, So, yeah. Well, tell us about some of the things that he did then. And uh, what was, you know, what do you think of them?
2: Okay. Well, in order. So he did buried alive, buried himself alive for seven days. Um, then there was ice. He was encased in uh, ice, very, very close to the ice for about three days. And bear, bear in mind, let, again, let's just say these were genuine, all right? Yeah, um, yeah. In all these, all these cases, he would not be uh, sleeping or eating either, which is probably difficult enough. Just, just that alone is difficult enough. But um, there's some good clips. Where he was on Joe Rogan a couple of years ago talking about the ice thing. I mean, he properly freaked out and started hallucinating. I mean, that was a pretty bad thing. And he, he said, I'd never in a million years do that again. Then he did another one. Yeah. He was on a pillar for a day and a half, but this one was quite good because it actually had an ending. And what they did was they constructed um, cardboard boxes in the last few hours. Mm. And then at the very end, they did a, you know, countdown, 10, nine, eight. And he jumped into the boxes to finish it people like that because there was a, some sort of ending rather than him just hanging around doing something yeah, um, yeah. and then there was the one that's probably the one i was always most interested in was the one called above the below so one i did the podcast yeah. about where he um was in a box um suspended from a crane over the by tower bridge 2003 yeah and didn't eat for 44 days and um, again people have argued about oh you know, did he have pure water or did it have electrolytes in it? But he actually came up with an explanation where electrolytes wouldn't have helped him. Um, but, uh, yeah, that that was on uh, I was only there for the beginning. I think I went to Thailand to work and, uh, channel four actually had a live webcam. And of course, to some people it just sounds the most ridiculous. Why would you bother just watching a guy doing nothing? But again, the performance art came from the reaction of the general public in England, which is really, really interesting. Basically, quite a lot of hate at the beginning. People going, oh, what are you doing, bloody American, coming over here, you know, with all your lofty ideas. And then as it got weaker and weaker, the, the British sympathy for the underdog came out. And then by the end, on the actual last day, which was a Sunday night, I remember, I mean, there were thousands of people there. It was very strange the way it it turned into a massive party and yeah there were young girls uh, one young girl david had thrown down his blanket you can imagine how bad that would have smelled and everything and she was clutching it and there were people having fancy relationships with him because the the other thing about him he was a very very good looking fella you know you have to say that he had that mysterious way about him and uh he was i used to call it loping charisma you know he'd sort of amble around always looking like he had plenty of time, but he was quite charismatic. And then he became famous for uh, dating all these um, glamorous women like Madonna and Fiona Apple and various models and things. Every time he did an endurance stunt, there always seemed to be a, 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 gorgeously, a, a gorgeous woman waiting for him at the end of it, looking really worried, oh God, what state's he gonna go, come back in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, that was it. So,
1: okay. Uh, we could, I mean, you know, you covered it in a lot more detail in your episode. Uh, the buried alive one, um, three. How how long was he under the ground? Seven days again. Seven days. Mm. How did he breathe? Do you know?
2: Yeah, they obviously had some sort of tube, and then they they had a tube for him to pee as well. But obviously, he wasn't eating, so he wasn't producing too much.
1: Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. That was generally, right.
2: the deal they had there, they'd always have some sort of, they'd always have tubes and. He had just enough to survive, basically.
1: Yeah. Okay. And what did he
2: say about that experience? Just that it was an incredible learning experience. In that, and, and I could totally get that. I think, I think people who like him or can tap into him, they can understand that, that when you take everything away, you gain a completely different perspective. I mean, he must be a meditator, obviously. We've talked about meditation. In that, there's no mm-hmm. doubt in my mind. And when I look at his reading list, it's quite similar to mine. We've obviously read a lot of the same books and stuff. I, th- I just think you learn, yeah, you learn a lot by having all the distractions taken away, really, that life is actually, I'd say with the, the one with the box, he, he said, you know, life is just a series of sunrises and sunsets. You know, obviously it's a bit more modern life, it's a bit more complicated than that. But when you really actually boil it down, we live in a, a very complicated society society that's made complicated, but when it comes down to it, you know, there's trees and there's breathing and there's, uh, well not breathing in his case, <laughs> And yeah. you know, sunrises and sunsets and smiles from people, you know, that was what sustained him because, you know, he was, he was mm-hmm. isolated in these times, but he, he said he would get off on, you know, seeing little kids, you know, staring in when he was buried alive. Oh, what's going on there? You know, same as when they receive magic as well. So I think that's what he, yeah. he likes, you know, he's trying to connect with people.
1: I just can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if anyone's got any feelings of claustrophobia, then obviously that would be completely impossible, but, um, just even just lying still like that, For seven days and not eating. I mean, absolutely incredible, really. Um, And the ice one. So, yeah. So he was encased in a block of ice. So I guess they kind of hollowed out a large block of ice, Hmm. right? I'm not sure, but I guess they hollowed it out. So there was a space inside this huge block of ice. And he went inside and stood inside it. For, for three straight days
2: Yeah, stand, standing up of course as well, standing up
1: standing up, but like seventy two hours is that three days
2: I think it was supposed to be uh <laughs> Hold on. it was a bit less my math seventy two hours is three days, but I think it was supposed to be oh, I think I it was supposed to be sixty one or something, and he uh he had to, they had to take him out about two hours from the end, of course he thought that to him that was a that was a terrible failure, <laughs> but uh, it was about there was obviously a gap you know he wasn't touching the ice and it's hard to know how cold it was you know obviously one of the things about him that maybe people got a bit bored with including me was that he'd always say i'm cheating death you know he, he kept saying you know oh, oh i could die you know I, re- mm-hmm. I was always pretty sure that i don't think david blaine's in the business of 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 dying for his art necessarily um but you know he's, he was a pretty crazy guy you know he was he was into testing the limits and, um, there was an interesting thing with the, the box as well, because his mother, um, had died of cancer and he was very, very close to his mother. I think his father had left when he was very young. It's very yeah. close to his mother and his mother had, um, died quite an ag- agonizing death over a number of months. And he said, Oh, you know, she never complained once, you know. And in the box, he actually had a picture of his mother. And I have a theory that maybe what he was doing in a funny way was reenacting the suffering of his mother. If you think about it, just getting progressively weaker and weaker, but using her as his inspiration. So, you know, obviously, I mean, he, he's a, he's a very rich guy. He's, he's got a brand. David Blaine is a brand. So I'm sure there's a business savvy side to him as well, but I I like to think that there is the other side that is personally cathartic for him. Yeah you know? yeah yeah um, but i don't think he's i don't think he was risking his life but i think he was taking it to the limits the other one yeah was the breath hold he was actually in um he stayed for a week um i can't remember what it he was in some sort of a pod no it was like a it was like a glass bowl almost
1: a kind of a goldfish bowl yeah, like kind of thing, goldfish yeah, yeah. A huge goldfish bowl and he was submerged <laughs> in it with 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 breathing apparatus, so he could breathe, but he was basically under the water for how long was yeah, a it? week a week a week yeah so i mean when i'm when I've been in the bath for about twenty minutes, mm. you know my finger like you know when we when we lie in the bath or in a swimming pool or something for about twenty minutes, your fingers start to go all they're wrinkly prune, yeah, yeah they go into like they're prune yeah like prunes, so God knows what happened to him after seven days, um submerged in water.
2: I mean he, he yeah well, there's pictures of him yeah we could we could put some links if you want and uh yeah yeah they just went completely white his feet and his his fingers was just like totally white and uh yeah it was it was quite gruesome But what he did with that one that that was the last one that I was probably really interested in that was the one after the starvation one and um yeah he was trying to break the breath hold record but, of course, he's a, he's an enormous handicap because he'd spent a week underwater already. And then the producers decided to make it more fun. They were going to put a load of uh, chains on him like they would have done with Houdini because Houdini's basically his hero as well. Um, so the breath hold started. He was already under a massive handicap. And then he had to um, release all these chains from his feet and, and hands just to make it more and more difficult. And, of course, he didn't. Didn't break the breath hold. Still did whatever he did. Seven minutes. Incredible. Breath. So he spent, he, sp- he spent
1: seven days in under the water. Mm. And then after that seven day experience, he decided to try to break the world breath hold. record for holding your breath. Yeah. With chains on him as yeah. well. What? I know. Yeah. It's, just silly, it's a bit it? much. It's
2: silly. But then he did manage to break the uh, record with, uh, apparently allowed to breathe pure, pure oxygen. There's a separate record. And he did something like 19 minutes on one breath on the Oprah show.
1: I think 19, it was, I think it was 19, 19, something like that, 17, 18, 19. Yeah, it was extraordinary, yeah, and, and quite stressful to watch mm. because at the very end you know after he'd broken the record and he's still holding his breath and you kind of think what's going on inside his body Mm -hmm. after that time and you know how desperate you get when you've we've all done it we've all been in the bath we've all dunked our head under the water and tried to hold our breath and you get to a point where you sort of stress out a bit and you quickly you know get to the surface and start breathing again Mm -hmm. so after 19 minutes the level of stress must have been unbearable i imagine
2: um yeah, he did a TED talk about it and it described it in quite a lot of detail. I think the thing that is interesting about all these stunts is that we can all relate to them in a very small way because, you know, probably we've all had some kind of confinement, probably only for <laughs> a minute or whatever. Um, mm. We've all been very cold, I imagine. So that was the ice one. Uh, we all know what heights are like, you know, when you're a kid and you you go to a high building and you have that exciting but terrifying feeling of height and then we've probably all um had a time we haven't been able to eat so, you know we can all identify in a small way uh i think yeah. the breath hold i suppose when you're a kid when you're a kid, when i was a kid i used to like <laughs> breathing uh um, holding my breath sorry so uh, i think i identified it in the, a bit because i've always tested myself in small ways you know nothing like that but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Again, just just um, saying that it is genuine. Um, I think it just he is showing that you know we we our limits are much uh, much further than we think. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and you should test yourself a little bit.
1: Mm. Yeah, that we can be pushed quite far, and that we do have yeah quite a lot of inner in ourselves. I remember that after well when I was. Uh, on holiday with my wife in Indonesia in I don't know what year. It was a few years ago. And um, we, one of the things that we realized we could do on one of these islands was climb this mountain. Mm. It's an active volcano. And, it's you know, when you go to these places, there's like a number of different things that you can do as a tourist. You know, there's like this kind of trip, this you know, this backpacking adventure thing you can go on. And one of them was climbing Mount Rinjani, which is an active volcano on one of the Indonesian islands, Lombok. And uh, it was like, oh, it's going to be a three-day thing. We can do some camping while we're doing it. This sounds like it could be fun. It turned out to be a a real ordeal, like a a really, really hard thing to do. Um, Climbing up in really hot weather, the, the thing is covered in volcanic dust uh and so you kind of climb up you go two steps up and you slide down another step you know like what it's like climbing up a sand dune mm. so it was like that the thing is 3726 meters up to the peak we climbed all the way up to the top over about two and a half days uh but it was it was really 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 difficult thing like one of the most difficult things we've done Mm. it's like a benchmark for the two of us like well you know this if you think this is difficult remember we climbed mount rinjani Mm. so we can do this but they're just climbing up the foothills was difficult there was like we call them the seven hills now Mm. because there were these seven horrible hills that you had to climb up and even just to get to the like the beginning almost Mm. you get to the crater rim And then from there, there's a climb up to the peak that you have to do first thing in the morning. And, yeah, you kind of think, I'm exhausted, but then you keep going. You know, you just have to keep going. You you try not to look all the way up to the top. You try not to see the whole whole climb. Mm -hmm. You just do it step by step, which is a thing i learned from doing that that sometimes you have to just keep get your head down and focus on the next step yeah. and if you can get the next step you can then get the step after that rather mm. than trying to see the whole thing as one big um uh like uh one big challenge um mm. and also we learned that yeah you, your body if you ask your body to do things it will it will do it for you you know mm. you might think you're tired but you know you can keep going and there's your body has these extra reserves. Um totally. Yeah. So that was, that was an interesting learning experience. Yeah. Um, Okay. Right. David Blaine. Yeah. The ice one, going back to the ice one again, Mm. I just, one of the things that that struck me that I remember about that is that they had to like, they had to cut him out of the ice. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know if that was a, again, a dramatic ending that they planned in advance. It's hard to know, isn't it? But as you said, like, because he was sort of delusional, at that point through exhaustion i don't know if that was because of the cold of the ice and whatever but he was hallucinating he said Mm. and didn't he as they were using chainsaws to cut the ice open because he didn't know what was going on he was trying to grab the
2: yeah the
1: blade of the chainsaw and stuff
2: yeah yeah that rogan the rogan clip's very good if you could uh, find that one that's yeah yeah he was properly losing the plot yeah yeah, he went to grab yeah, well, it apparently, but obviously, you know, he's got people around him. He's got three or four guys and they understand that this could happen. You know, you can get in that state where you, you're a bit confused, but yeah, yeah I think the ice bomb was the one yeah. he actually said he would never do again, like under any circumstances. I think that and the starvation is probably, they probably were the, the hardest ones. I think the one on the pillar is mm-hmm. very difficult, but he, he, he trained for a year. You know, that's the thing. He did a lot of training. He's very into physical yeah. training. But I think the, um, the the box one, the starvation one, I think he actually said that's messed up his metabolism forever.
1: Really? Per- forever. permanently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not a good idea. I mean, they they say that fasting is, is you know, can be healthy and mm. stuff like that. But uh, obviously what he did was so extreme, yeah. yeah, that's damaging. That's damaging to your body. Isn't it – one final thing about mm. David Blaine, before we move on to the next thing – um, didn't Paul McCartney um, – isn't there a Paul McCartney connection to this? <laughs> yeah. Isn't there a story where Paul McCartney was on a night out yeah. and he ended up going down to see – oh, just go down and see David Blaine yeah, yeah. in the box? Didn't Paul McCartney go and see him?
2: Yeah, and, uh, and he was either drunk or stoned. It was one of the two, or maybe both. And he was <laughs> going, what's that silly? <laughs> Dude. Like really? that Paul was being really, really belligerent, apparently. <laughs> And David Blaine. Really? They asked David Blaine. He said, oh, "I was uh, I was asleep at the time, so I didn't see it." <laughs> yeah, but it's <laughs> funny that it's so random, isn't it? Paul McCartney would go yeah. down there. Obviously, there were there were quite a few celebs uh, getting some photo opportunities there as well. But, yeah, Paul was there.
1: Interesting. that Paul goes down. Oh, David Blaine in a box. He did the What's box? he
3: doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, okay right so our next subject is that is well kind of uh connected to what we've just talked about is the subject of food mm. so i guess my question is do you do you watch what you eat do you have a particular diet
2: uh i don't have a particular diet but yes i've been um conscious of uh food and uh you know how it affects your mental health as well for, for many years now, that was part of one of my, um, journeys. I always find I have a complicated relationship with food. I always find that when I'm in control of my life, I seem to be able to control my diet. Uh, it could be the other way around in fact, really. <laughs> but, um, yeah, when I'm not in control, when I'm stressed and everything, I find I just snack more and more and, um, mm. Because I've never been really a massive drinker. I was still, when I was young, I went through the usual phase that you would have in England going out and stuff. But, mm. um, yeah, I do. Probably the most, um, probably the most interesting thing I could say about this is that in about 2010, I was living in Thailand and I put on a load of weight. And, um, oh, because I've been back in England over Christmas enjoying myself. I got back to yeah. Thailand and um, my girlfriend at the time, um, I think we were talking on part one about having a really brutal sense of humor. She said, she was like, oh, look at you, how fat you are now. <laughs> she just came out with that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> thank you, darling. And um, so I decided to do something about it. And I got a load of uh, raw food, um, audio books and podcasts and stuff, and started binging them. For about six months, I went about 80% raw. And I was also exercising because I, I lived right, right by a gym. And me being me, of course, I had to take it one step further. Not only was I doing all that, but I was emulating uh, uh, Robert De Niro and Raging Bull and was also uh, jogging in the steam room after my workout. You know, because you've got to go. Uh, that's
4: where he's like, just give me just a little bit of ice, just on the tongue. Yeah, just give me. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I just thought I'd go the whole hog. But what, what I learned about food is that it's something very interesting. Well, I, I learned quite a lot about the industry, and it's so horrifying. If you really look at it properly, the food industry. The food industry. Yeah, yeah. what's being put in our food and stuff. It's so horrifying that um, I won't divulge too much here. But I learned that um, as I was eating less, I was feeling less hungry, and I thought, hmm, that's not the way it's supposed to work, is it? So I started doing a bit of research, and I was researching. There's a thing called excitotoxins. Things that basically they put in food, uh, biscuits and crisps and things like that, that excites your nervous system, and yeah, and just makes you more hungry. You know, I mean, they make a joke of it, don't they? What was it, Pringles? You know, once you pop, you can't stop. I mean, there's a reason for that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, rather than actually go on a diet, I um, well, I suppose it was a diet, a raw food diet, and I I learned a hell of a lot. Yeah, and since then. You know, I wouldn't say my diet's perfect by any means, but my like weight is traditionally fluctuated up and down. But yeah, I think, I think the thing about it is that we always focus on uh, physical weight, don't we? But I think yeah. food has a massive effect on your mental health as well. Yeah,
1: sugar, for yeah, example. Sugar, yeah. Sh- sugar can, they put sugar in lots of different food and that um, obviously gives you an instant sort of energy kick, mm. an instant sort of, your body has an instant positive response to it. But then, yeah, you get tr- you get caught in that sort of cycle of, then then your body expects it. You know, it's it's a sort of an addictive substance, isn't it? Yeah, really, absolutely, um, yeah. And you can you can be caught in an, in a cycle of sort of addiction to sugar, mm. where where even just you have your meal and then you have that feeling afterwards where you just feel like oh, I need something sweet now. Mm. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so that's something to to be
2: aware of, I suppose people just want to do a little experiment and learn a bit more. Just have a look at products in your supermarket and just check the packets and see how much sugar there is in there. It's absolutely crazy. And I mean, just recently having this illness, um, I started drinking fruit juice, but after a while I, c- I couldn't drink it cause it's, it's just too sugary. There's way more sugar. It's going up and up and up and up and refined sugar really is the most addictive, uh, substance in the world, in my opinion. Um, And everybody, everybody is basically addicted to it, whether they realize it or not. Everybody has a certain amount of refined sugar in their diet every single day. I mean, you can't help it unless you get proper organic food and things. Um, so that's really something to, to bear in mind. Yeah. Cause there's simple sugar and there's refined sugar. And you like to think that in a, you know, an apple or an orange, you're getting simple sugar that you need. But there's no way we need as much sugar as we have. No way. It's not that necessary. Yeah. But it's just highly addictive. And things like chocolate bars and, and hot dogs and hamburgers, I mean, they're just they're genius creations of uh addiction, basically. And and it is addiction, yeah. let's call it that, you know. We're all pretty much addicted to refined sugar. Unless you make a really, really massive effort. But I mean it's just in everything, you know, it's in uh carrots and bread and things like that, things that you wouldn't expect. You just find food yeah, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, bread. I mean, when I go
1: to the supermarket living in France, one of the advantages is that the boulangeries do sell pretty good bread. I mean, it's like homemade bread. You can get some sort of like really good bread varieties using whole whole wheat and other types of uh, you know cereals and stuff and it's it's really good quality stuff you know it is because after about 24 hours it's gone hard mm. and you can't eat it anymore mm. you know it's it's not like um bread that i often find in the supermarkets in england I'll go to the supermarket and I'm looking for nice bread and all the packets of bread, you know, uh, the sliced loaves, which are in plastic bags. You look at the I'm searching through the ingredients, trying to find ones that don't have, you know, a lot of sugar in them because you can often find sugar in the ingredients list. They add that to add flavor to the bread and other other things that will preserve the bread mm. like that bread lasts all week. You know, a, a loaf of bread will last you all week. I mean, I don't really, I'm not an expert, of course, on nutrition and stuff like that. But I think, you know, it's a bit its suspicious. I, I feel mm. a bit suspicious when a loaf of bread that you've bought lasts all week and it doesn't start to go mouldy or, or start to go hard. Mm. Now, Obviously, it's inconvenient when your bread, when you pull it out of the cupboard and it's got little bits of green mould in it and you've got to throw it away. Mm. But uh, if the bread does grow mould after a few days, that's or, you know, or at least it goes hard or something after a few days. That's sort of normal. That's what bread should do, really. Mm-hmm. But when it's not and it stays fresh for ages, then, yeah, they've probably done something funny to it, which which keeps it fresh. You know, preservatives.
2: Yeah. 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 There's an experiment. Um, do you remember the guy who ate McDonald's for a month? I think his name is Morgan Spurlock.
1: Morgan Spurlock yeah that film uh, super size me super size yeah i used me. to use that in i used to use that in uh, english lessons yeah, sometimes i yeah. uh, yeah. built some english uh, learning materials from it and i remember doing a few classes where we would do maybe the the morning session would be about you know that, and it's like discussion, language work, listening, comprehension. Mm. Everyone is is can relate to the subject of McDonald's and stuff mm. like that. And it and yeah, the story talks about how he the the documentary is that he chooses to eat McDonald's as a challenge. He eats meals, meals from McDonald's for every three meals a day, all from McDonald's for a long time. And then we see what happens to his body, and it's quite horrific, really. But then every single time I did that lesson. Uh, it would be, we'd stop for lunch. And after lunch, I'd say to everyone, right, did you have a nice lunch? And I'd say, who had McDonald's? And like loads of them yeah. would, have, would say, oh, yeah, we went to McDonald's because I don't know what it is about McDonald's and the marketing of it. Just looking at the products, looking at the name and looking at the logo and stuff made people want to go and eat it, yeah. even though uh, the documentary showed what it did to his health. Yeah, right. But, yes, Morgan Spurlock, supersized Me. Yeah. We did an experiment.
2: There's a it's on YouTube, I think, there's a video where he, he kept um I think it was a, a burger from a burger shop and then a McDonald's burger and then chips from a proper chip shop and then McDonald's French fries and he kept them all under a in a a plastic container and he was checking on them. He left them in room temperature in his office. And he was checking on yeah. them every two weeks. And obviously there was a, you know, he was the way he delivered it was quite comedic. And he said, Oh, let's have a look after two weeks. And there was mold growing off the proper burger. And I won't go into the details, but by, um, I can't remember if it was, it was something like four weeks, maybe even six weeks. And the kicker was that the McDonald's French fries had not altered like at all, like not, not (laughs) at all. They looked exactly the same. Presumably you could have eaten them. You yeah, know, and that is that is quite scary if you think about it. What was it? Four, four weeks, six weeks, something like that. Yeah, they had not altered,
1: not at all. Yeah, not changed at all. Yeah, I used to joke with my friends that McDonald's, that in the back of the McDonald's, they just had like these tubs of stuff, and they would just pour this stuff into machines and then press, pull different levers, mm. and. Different products would come out. It's just like this McDonald's matter that mm. they would pour into like the McDonald's machine, and then kachong milkshake, yeah. kachong French fries, kachong burger. Uh, <laughs> um, obviously, they say in McDonald's that it's made from 100% beef. Their burgers are made from 100% beef. All right, but what part? You know, <laughs> 100% beef means yeah, 100% cow right but uh that doesn't say what they did to the cow before they turned it into the burger and which parts of the cow they're using yeah
2: there's another famous clip of um jamie oliver he did a thing called jamie's school dinners in in in, in england yeah and there's a there's a famous clip where he's um explaining to kids get i haven't checked this i'll take him at his word how how nuggets are made and he said oh so he has this um raw chicken. He says, "Like right, what bits of a chicken can you eat? So they tell you you know, press to the legs, except for the meat. Yeah. yeah. So he cuts those off and all he's got left is this uh, horrible uh, carcass. And uh, then he explains how they make it and they stick it in a blender and then they, you know, it gets softened. They make it into patties. They add all the flavorings and the, to make it smell nice and then deep fry it. And that's how you get nuggets apparently. And all the children are yeah. going, uh, you know, but of course at the end, he says, oh, is anyone going to stop eating nuggets? And they're like, no, no. Because he said that it's not because they're stupid. It's because of the it's the pull of it. You know, but I mean, I stopped eating McDonald's and Burger King years and years ago. And uh, all all it takes is just to stop for a bit. And uh, I'm sure you wouldn't miss it that much.
1: Yeah. But they're very clever. You know, they, they just happen to be in the right the right place at the right time, McDonald's, where you've been out maybe maybe you've been out you might have had a beer or two and uh you're hungry and there's nowhere else to get food and oh of course there's a McDonald's within walking distance in fact it's on the way home I'll just pop in it's open it's really easy to 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 get food from there you don't even need to even uh you don't really even need to interact with a person you know you just press a few buttons on the screen and then someone hands it over to you. So, yeah, you know, they've kind of um, arranged things to to make us keep going back.
2: Oh, yeah, it's very um, clever, but uh, it's pretty evil as well, really. The, the food industry, like I say, it depends how deeply you want to look into it. Probably wouldn't recommend people go too deep, but it's it's frightening, really frightening.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm.
2: There you go, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Little advert there
1: for again. McDonald's. Some. Other fast food restaurants are available. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's move from talking about food to talking about films. Mm. Um, is there a connection? Foods is stuff you eat with your mouth. Films, you, do we eat films with our eyes? I don't know. <laughs> um, i don't know if i'm just trying to make a connection (laughs) films then okay now uh, i'm not going to ask you what's your favorite film well i already know as well but Mm. that's one of those questions that's actually really difficult to answer but what are some of your favorite films
2: (laughs) so i just say what my favorite film is anyway
1: or or what's your yeah or what, what 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 films have you been have you enjoyed recently or what what at the moment is your favorite film uh
2: well i do have a flick chart actually i um I filled it in. I'm pretty confident I've got every film I've ever watched on it now. And let's have a look at the total. 1,529. Not bad. Yes, Raging Bull is at the top. Uh, It's a film. Raging Bull. Yeah, it's a Martin Scorsese film from 1980 with Robert De Niro that I mentioned earlier related to boxing. But uh, that period of um, films, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls period, as it's called by some people,
1: um, yeah the sort of the the late 60s through to the late 70s basically mm. right uh sort of american cinema from that period we think of films yeah by martin scorsese and francis ford coppola
2: mm. um and um, who else uh well spielberg's in there george lucas brian de palma those kind of people yeah yeah, yeah.
1: okay, okay. All right. Uh, now, I've got in my list, actually, The Shining, because you've talked about The Shining mm-hmm, quite a lot before. Mm-hmm. And The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, actually 1980, isn't mm-hmm. it? Jack Nicholson is the star of the film. Uh, it describes, it's, it's the story of a writer who goes to stay in a, a, an unoccupied hotel mm-hmm. somewhere in 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 the United States, some amazing mountainous area of, is it like Colorado, uh, Colorado or something? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, he occupied, he stays in the hotel, which is basically unoccupied, um, because it's off season. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, um, he's there with his family, his wife, and his, his young son. And he goes there to write, but then he kind of slowly goes mad, mm-hmm. um, in this huge hotel, kind of more or less on his own, trying to write. Um, and, uh, so much has been said and written about The Shining. It's based on a a novel by Stephen King, although it's quite different to the novel, I understand. Yeah, right. So what's so special about The Shining,
2: do you think? Uh, I mean, The Shining's never been one of my really favourite films. I, I, I can admire it quite a bit. And Kubrick would be, I forgot to mention Kubrick. I mean, he was involved in that 70s period, although obviously he came from an earlier period. But he was still around, you know, he did Clockwork Orange and shining and so forth um i think my interest was piqued by our mutual friend uh rob ager who's become a kind of a mate of mine now and in fact i stayed over at his uh his house last summer in liverpool nice had a fun time yeah um yeah he started doing these videos in about 2008 or nine um talking about things like how the rooms didn't properly match up in the shiny. The rooms at the rooms of the, the hotel. The rooms of the hotel didn't match up until because you see a fair amount of the hotel at the beginning when uh, Jack and his wife are being shown around by the, the, the manager. And then later on, obviously, you know, they're stuck in this hotel, so they're moving around it quite a bit. He pointed that out, and then he pointed out that there was a gold connection, which was related to the history of gold in America. And then there may even be a um something related to the native American uh, genocide as well. Cause they say at the beginning that the, that the hotel was built on Indian burial ground. There's music, there's certain artwork on the walls. Yeah. And um I think for me, it became perhaps more interesting than watching the film itself. I haven't watched the film through actually for years. It's a puzzle. You know, I, I like, I can't, I quite like these cavernous buildings, you know, the idea of a really labyrinthine uh, rooms and things like that. And, uh, I think it was the mystery element of, uh, Oh, what's actually going on. You know, I've always been attracted to that, you know, or what's really going on behind closed doors. You know, Mm. there's other ideas that the shining is, um, yeah, that with this native American thing, um, Jack is, uh, essentially signing the, um, declaration of independence it's it's a bit, bit complicated story but so these i should just say mm.
1: that we're talking about the fact that the shining people say that there are lots of hidden meanings mm. in it or meanings which are not that obvious but which if you when you look very carefully uh mm. kubrick has intentionally put little symbolic things in and which mean that the film is actually about something much larger or something else. And mm-hmm. some people have said, yeah, it's about the story of the Native Americans and how they were treated uh, in the United States, or that it's about the moon landing, mm-hmm. uh, or that it's about other things, that it's something about the history of gold in America, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. and and some other things like that. So So you're referring to one particular point in the film that seems to represent... That Jack is uh, writing the Declaration of Independence. Well, sign, I haven't heard this one. Signing wonderful.
2: Declaration of Independence. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm a bit rusty on the details, to be honest. Yeah, there's yeah, so many yeah. videos. I mean, obviously, if you look online, you can find. I mean, I'd, I'd go to Rob's ones first, basically, because he's pretty solid yeah. all the way. Um, and also, of course, it's it's just remarkably creepy uh, with the two twins and. Uh, now the story doesn't really make any sense at all. If you watch the film, there are things that happen. You think, well, how, how could that possibly happen? And then you put it down to ghosts, and you say, well, okay. So, is any of it real? You know, is Jack Torrance real? Even so, it's not really a puzzle that you could uh, um, complete. But uh, there's a, a definite. Uh, there's such a creepy vibe about it, and the idea that yeah. you know maybe this hotel it always made me think. Actually. When I stay in a hotel, you know, if you stay in a hotel room, you think, how many people have stayed in this room before? And what's got on? You know, <laughs> it could be anybody who yeah. stayed in this room before this. There's a whole history to a hotel. And I think that's the fascination. And, you know, like I said these cavernous rooms and these corridors and everything. And of course, without giving the ending away too much, they do this fa- fabulous trick with a, with a photo, don't they, from the past, yeah. which proves that maybe Jack Torrance has always been there. But uh, I, I like the way they use jaunty nineteen forties. You know, midnight. Da, 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 da. I always find that very sinister. If you play this sort of jaunty forties music in the right atmosphere,
1: it does create yeah sinister juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, simply as a work of, of uh, film direction, it, it's it's incredibly clever the way um, he creates this atmosphere where things just don't feel right. Mm. And he, and Kubrick was very meticulous as a director. And so all of those things were probably intentional. Like, as you say, the design of the hotel yeah. that you see, there are quite a lot of establishing shots of the hotel or moments where we see you know, the hotel and we get to know the layout of the hotel to some extent. Mm. And then there are some moments where we follow the characters as they walk through the corridors and you realize that, you know, they enter a room that has a window with light shining through it. And you realize, wait a minute, this isn't possible. There's, it's not possible for there to be a window that shines light in from this position. Mm. And you might not realize it when you first watch it, but it does give you a sense of unease and a sense of things being quite strange and weird. Mm. So Th- all of these little touches yeah have led people to interpret the film in all sorts of different ways yeah. i watched that documentary with my brother recently uh, it's called room 237 it's quite a famous documentary a lot of other a lot of a lot of people say that it's nonsense you know a lot of those those ideas and they will posit other um other sort of interpretations of the film instead. But it's just interesting that there's such wild, wildly different interpretations of what the film means. Um, you know, it's fascinating. Well, it's yeah.
2: an interesting microcosm of maybe something we'll talk about later, which is alternative theories and conspiracy theories. Because mm-hmm. in, in that world that I know pretty well, again, uh, it's just a mixture of credible ones and, and ridiculous ones. I mean, that's, yeah, is, well, you know, you
1: let's it. go on to talk about that. Let's go on to talk about that. That's, that's the next item on my list, which is conspiracy theories. Mm. The, 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 the question that I actually have is, I think, well, I think most people listening will know what a conspiracy theory is. Most people s- understand the term to mean basically the idea that, oh, it's hard to, hard to define it. Um, uh,
2: well, just the idea that two or more people have got together in a secret way and planned something, and essentially, uh, I'd like to just talk briefly about the history of it because I think it's important. But um, yeah, and nowadays, see, I prefer the term alternative explanation because it doesn't come so loaded. That uh, if yeah. you if you take an example that everyone can get on board with, which is the killing of uh, John F. Kennedy in November, nineteen sixty-three. I don't know what the latest figures are, but definitely the majority of Americans. Uh, believe that there is a, there is at least something else going on. You know, that Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. didn't act alone. So a conspiracy could have been between, uh, the mafia could have been between his political enemies, uh, Cubans. It could be various people because it was a very, very strange time, in the early sixties, but it's always a strange time in politics. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's the idea that, that, You know, the official story that we're given is, may not be uh, everything we need to know or anything we need to know, in fact.
0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Yeah, the official story of that being that um, Lee Harvey Oswald was the only um, gunman Mm. and that from the window of the book depository building, he uh, managed to assassinate the President Kennedy mm. and the reasons given, what were in the main, in the official version of that story, what are the reasons given for him doing it? What were uh, the
2: motives? Oh, again, this is, this is so complicated. But <laughs> I mean, he may have been a communist or communist sympathizer. It's, would it be really a political assassination. Um, yeah, funnily enough, thinking about it, it wasn't really, he didn't really have a chance to give a clear motive. Because, of course, he was killed himself live on television. Yeah, um, But, yeah, would it, people would say it was to do with yeah, the political leanings of uh, JFK. But, yeah, that's a really good question because I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's actually come up with a really good motive for Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, he, we know he defected to Russia. Um, But then JFK was supposed to be soft on, they always call it soft on communism when you're trying to build a decent relationship with the USSR.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's actually a good question. (laughs) But it's probably, you know, generally speaking, the understanding is that Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist, Mm. uh, an enemy of America Mm. working with the Soviets Mm. and that he had become an agent of the Soviets. And So it was basically America's enemies killing the president Mm. and that's it. Mm. Right. Um, But maybe the alternative ideas suggest that it could have been an inside job, that maybe there were forces inside the United States Mm. who disagreed with JFK and the direction he was taking with the country and that um, other, that that in fact, they're the ones who, who killed him, I suppose.
2: Yeah. There's a big debate about whether JFK was um, anti-Vietnam or anti American involvement in Vietnam that he was trying to pull them out. I've listened to debates and I mean there's you know, people arguing passionately on both sides. Um can I just talk about the uh, the term itself? Because I, I think Yeah. I think yeah. this is really the salient point. So as far as I know, okay, if you take uh let's take the pre JFK assassination, let's say we're in the fifties, or whatever. Um the term conspiracy theory was in uh in use it was a, it was a thing, and uh it seems like people would talk about things like that like american let's just say say Americans, for example, would talk about oh you know who who really killed uh, Abraham Lincoln you know was it John Wilkes booth uh what was the American Civil War really about, and people used to be able to talk about this you know maybe over coffee and brandy or whatever it was after dinner. And those are the kind of discussions that, I mean, I don't really have them anymore, but I used to have those with friends as well. And there was no stigma involved. It was just, oh, that's curious. I wonder if that was that or that wasn't that, you know. Mm. But what happened was after, after JFK was killed and there was clearly or very quickly a backlash, even before we saw the, the famous Sapruda film, which didn't, wasn't seen until the mid seventies. What happened was that the, there's a CIA document that I read, uh, years ago, and it was to do with, uh, using the phrase conspiracy theorist as a pejorative, as a, as a, a kind of an accusation to say that yeah. someone who thinks like that is, you know, a bit of a, a bit, um, unhinged. Um, yeah. A
1: mad person who wears a tinfoil, tinfoil hat. hat.
2: Yeah. So all the, all these stereotypes were created and everything. And we do know, um, there's a thing called Operation Mockingbird, which again is a What's thing. That? It's not a theory. It was a, a CIA operation in that they planted operatives into the media to to plant trigger words and to, you know, weave newspapers towards stories that were, you know, gonna shape the world the way that the CIA wanted to, to shape it.
1: And that's not that's not just a theory or a speculation no, that's no. that's provable. That's a real thing,
2: Operation mm-hmm. Mockingbird. Yeah. And, um, yeah, to cut a long story short. So this thing was entirely created, whereas, whereby someone becomes a conspiracy theorist and just becomes a person who with no evidence at all is just looking for conspiracies. And then there's all these been all these academic papers. And I had a discussion with a guy on, on uh, life and life only. who'd who'd been involved with a paper that said that people who believe conspiracy theories have got, have had insecure attachments as a child. Of course, the big question comes, well, maybe if I believe that, maybe I'm, I've got an insecure attachment as a child, or maybe I did some research and found that a lot of it was true. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's a bit of a radical idea, but um, anyway, so this is just, this is just carried on and on and on. And the problem is it's like anything. When you hear intelligent people on TV ridiculing it and talking about tinfoil hats and things, it suddenly has a lot of credibility. And so, it, but it, it's just been planted deliberately in the culture. And I've had conversations with people where um, we're talking about something, and I present a bit of evidence, and they're fairly open-minded and they kind of go with it. Let's say about nine eleven. Okay, I mean, I don't think nine eleven was necessarily an inside job, but there's no way if you research more than half an hour that you're not going to think there's something at least slightly strange, you know, when there's 40 or 50 anomalies that build up. Anyway, you could be having a discussion with somebody, and then as soon as you reach the point where they think, oh, yeah, maybe he's talking about conspiracy, they either they sort of shy away. I've had this so many times where they get a little smirk on their face, and suddenly it's a place that you can't go. So what's happened is this phrase has been used to brilliantly shut down debate you know it's like it's like almost having an allergic reaction that's why i think mm. it's been planted because it's it's created a reaction in people um so really my my angle is not about you know jfk or princess diana i mean if you want one that that just seems like a slam dunk to me the 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 death of uh, david kelly the weapons inspector 2003 right
1: so we need a bit of context for that. Oh, yeah. 2003, yeah. the USA uh, and the UK, and probably some other countries—I can't remember exactly which ones—decided uh, to, how shall I put it, invade Iraq and uh, remove Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they presented it as um, a way to prevent uh, terrorism, mm. and they said that there was evidence that uh, in Iraq, they had access to weapons of mass destruction. Mm. The idea being that Saddam Hussein supported terrorists and that terrorists would be able to get their hands on like nuclear weapons or something similar Mm. and do something like 9-11, but on a much larger scale. Mm. And so we need to go in and we've done it. We've got the intelligence reports. They do have weapons of mass destruction. So we're going to go in and do the right thing. Mm. That's 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 the kind of context and david kelly was a uh, an expert a weapons, a, um, a weapons inspector what happened
2: yeah well he he was involved with a report which was basically saying that they didn't have they didn't have that and uh,
1: they did the the report said that they didn't have didn't find weapons marital. of mass destruction yeah
2: and then there was a big scandal with uh, this uh, sexed up dossier that said that uh, i think it was the 45 minute claim wasn't it that um Saddam uh could uh yeah blow up the world in 45 minutes essentially get a bit sketchy on the details unfortunately but um mm. and uh he was under a lot of pressure and then suddenly he was found uh, dead in the woods and he'd actually taken an overdose and cut his wrists as well and there's a whole uh whole story to it but it was interesting to see in real time something like that happening because we, we don't know what it was like when F Kennedy was killed, but that was one that was happening in real time. And the way that it just, because of the new, because of the news cycle, it's a story for a while, but then the news cycle moves on so quickly that it gets forgotten. But, uh, what happened was there was, I think it was a liberal MP, Norman Baker, uh, started his own investigation. And, um, I haven't read his book, but I've heard on good authority. It's a good book. And he found that he almost certainly didn't kill himself that something else happened. But, you know, I heard this friend of mine posted a clip around the time on his podcast, or it must be a few years later of these people on a BBC radio program. And it's just the smugness of this guy's tone. He was going, Oh yeah, conspiracy theorist. You know, when you listen Mm -hmm. to the, the tone of these people, and how dismissive they are, and you, again you just you have to marvel at what a well created phrase it is to just mm-hmm. shut down debate because it's just so yeah. easy isn't it you know.
1: but it is also clever in this fact in the sense that to an extent there are certain we, we all have seen uh, videos or we've heard people talking about ideas, and that, so there are some people who Clearly, just seem to make stuff up. Oh, yeah, sure. And yeah. they've just, they've, they've, their approach is to, they've decided that things are not as they seem. Mm. And then they seem to just pluck evidence out of nowhere and they just seem to make stuff up. Mm. Right. And these, these sort of people who, I don't know, that you, you just see even conversations on the Joe Rogan podcast with certain guests that he has. Mm. And they're talking about chemtrails or they're talking about the moon landings mm-hmm. or whatever. And these people just say, oh, they did this. They're doing this. And uh, mm. they, they're just pulling this stuff out of nowhere. They're essentially just speculating and then deciding that those speculations are, are, are real, you know. And uh, so there are. There's kind of like good alternative approaches to seeing things and kind of like the yes. the other side, which is people who have absolutely no rigor or no method, no um, uh, uh, no commitment to a proper process of using evidence and all the rest of it. Mm. And those those are the examples that people have in their minds yes. when they hear the term conspiracy theory. They think about a nutter who is just making it all up on their own mm. and just... Creative thinking and people will say that these people just they they actually it's wishful thinking Mm -hmm. that these people want there to be someone controlling it all out of some uh, desire to have to be living in a world in which is under control, you know, that they they want to imagine that the world is under someone's control and that it's not all just sort of random or something. You know, so yeah. so there's that there's those sorts of people who have those sorts of ideas and present their ideas in that kind of way. And they sort of spoil it for everyone else in a way, you know. And, you know, another example is the Paul is dead. Con- the Paul is dead conspiracy or the Paul is dead uh, idea. Uh, you know, people saying that Paul McCartney died in 1966 and he was replaced by a body double uh, because, um the establishment decided that if the if the world lost the Beatles, that it would be too bad for the economy, basically, mm. and that lots of teenagers would be devastated. And, you know, so they decided to keep the, the whole thing going, you know, mm. with a body double. But I mean, you know, I think it's ridiculous enough thought about it and considered it. Quite a lot, I think, and considered the evidence that I've seen in some of those those videos that have been presented. And it becomes very irritating where you you'll be looking at Beatles' videos or interviews with Paul, and there's always people in the comments saying, Oh, this is the fake Paul, oh, this is fall. fall or and it's just like, oh, this is so annoying, you know yeah. it just becomes irritating. So there's that you know that category of the sort of ridiculous nonsense. But yeah, they that has been used. That the term has been used to kind of lump in those people, maybe with people who have perhaps more reasonable alternative approaches. Yeah, researchers. You know, so the, researchers. It's been yeah, researchers. People who actually you know use the right methods. Mm. So it's all been mixed in together, and. So, yeah, that's, again, why conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist is such a powerful term Mm is because you say that and instantly people just, you know, um, imagine that we're talking about these kind of people who've got no method at all.
2: Um, Yeah, I want to make mm -hmm. it clear. I I agree with you. There are people out there who do, you know, chase conspiracy theories and make them up. I wasn't saying that they were all uh, credible. I just like as you said, Mm -hmm. they'd be lumped in. And there's no middle ground. You know, there are people who basically believe uh, mainstream news, probably scan it for 10 minutes a day. Then on the very, very other extreme, you've got people who just think it's all lies. But then there is this space in the middle and there are credible researchers, you know, a couple of whom I've talked to on my podcast, even, you know, so yeah, yeah, it's just, but I think, I think the danger with, for me, the danger is that the people who just reject it all, They're being kept innocent, really, in a way, and not being encouraged to look at things for themselves. Because if you just, if you can just dismiss everything you don't see on mainstream news as a conspiracy theory, you're basically saying in your mind, oh, well, they're telling me everything I need to know. I don't need to do any work myself. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think people should be working hard. (laughs) I know we're working hard anyway with other things, but. Mm. We're not working mm. hard, but we're working uh, to nuance nu- in our lives in some way. Yeah, but I yeah. think people should put in the work to uh, nuance their worldview and check different sources and things like that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Mm. Interesting stuff. I had a conversation with some flat Earth uh, guys mm. once on their podcast. That was an interesting experience. Mm. Just, just because you know. It's not every day that you get the chance to, to to talk to some guys who think the Earth is flat. Mm. It was really interesting. They didn't convince me,
4: mm.
1: you know. But you start to get down to a level where you're talking about mathematical, mathematical formulas and how do you actually prove that the Earth is round. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, a, in a, just a one-to-one conversation... It becomes a philosophical discussion, and it becomes very hard to actually prove it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I found it really hard to actually just using my my layperson's knowledge to actually, conv- you know, to to lay the evidence out to them in a way that could actually convince them. Mm. They tried the same thing with me, and they they didn't succeed. Mm. But ultimately, yeah, it does to an extent come down to your choices, how you choose to to, to see the world. They. Yeah they had chosen they had decided that the earth was flat i found that really that's i've talked to you about this before that's the thing i wish i'd said to them because hmm. their podcast is called the flat earth podcast but they're always saying that they're on a mission to to talk about the truth hmm. right and in my opinion they they their approach was right the earth is flat let's find ways to con. con- concoct evidence or concoct theories to prove that, that the Earth is flat, rather than let's just find out what the shape of the Earth is. You know, so I wish I'd said to them, so, you know, are you are you interested in in searching for the real shape of the Earth? You know, are you really interested in searching for the truth? And of course, I think they would have said yes. Mm-hmm. And then my killer blow would have been, so why is the show called The Flat Earth Podcast? It seems to me that you've decided it's flat. And now you're just finding ways to kind of back back that up. And some of the ways that they'd chosen, they were just literally pulling every single possible thing they could Mm -hmm. that would prove that the Earth was flat. And a lot of these things they were pulling in were completely contradictory and incongruous with each other mm. and not backed up by real things like one of them was saying oh yeah i'm building a a model of the universe in my back garden mm. right as a way of proving it and it's like are you really building so how big is the sun you know i didn't ask them these things i wish i had how big is how big is the sun let's say it's the size of a basketball all right so if that's the case then to make it really scientifically accurate you'd have to have a massive back garden Mm -hmm. because even if the sun is the size of a basketball the (laughs) the distance between the sun and the earth you know in scale would be like quite far away down the road you know Mm. so any anyway Anyway, it was very
2: interesting. That's quite a extreme um, example, though, isn't it? Flat Earth. I think. Uh,
1: yeah. Again, another. That's that's on the sort of that side that I was talking mm-hmm. about before. But flat Earth is, yeah, it's it's very interesting because you kind of think, why is it that people have decided that the Earth is flat? You know, mm-hmm. I think it's just that. that it, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Why do you think? I mean,
2: they could what? be planted. You know, for for all we know. I think these things Mm -hmm. are put in there just to discredit the whole deal, but there are, you know, there are wacky people out there, you know? I mean, I think, I think in every, in every walk of life, you get people who are seeking attention, people who are hoping someone else will tell them what's what, and then people who like to try and find things out for themselves. So like I say, I mean, you, you, if you look at the news, it's a bit like the food industry. It's, it's how far you want to go into it. Now you can mm. skim the surface and have a quick look at what's in the packet and then buy it. Same with the news. You can, have, you could have a quick look at the headline and say, Oh, that happened. That happened. That happened. Oh, I'm basically informed. Or you can go deeper, but you're, you're always in everything. You're always going to get different types of people. And that's just a reflect. This is just a reflection of it, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. But uh, yeah, there's so yeah. many credible alternative researchers out there. I mean, I could give you a hundred names, but and there's so much more to know. That's it. The idea that in this complex, unbelievably complex world where stuff is happening every single second, twenty-four hours a day, with obviously different time zones and things, the idea that you could just turn on the TV and watch a news bulletin and think. Oh, well, they've just picked everything I need to know for my own good. That's fine. Yeah, that seems as absurd as saying everything is a lie, you know. The truth is obviously somewhere in the middle, but I don't know. I I just encourage people to to seek stuff out for themselves, really. That's what it comes down to.
4: Mm. Yeah. Okay.
1: Let's move on to a perhaps lighter topic, (laughs) and that's comedy.
4: Mm.
1: Kind of quite a harsh right turn or left turn here <laughs> from one topic to the next but comedy it's something i like to talk about on my podcast quite a lot because mm-hmm. i'm a huge fan of comedy and i i think you are too mm. so the question i have for you here is simply well it's another what's your favorite mm. but at the moment what comes to mind as one of your favorite comedy shows
2: well, you know what's coming here. You just you just you just teed this up, haven't you? Let's be honest. Do I?
1: <laughs> Do I because either you're going to talk about Alan Partridge or you're going to talk about uh yes minister. Oh yes, um, yes, yes. So it could be one of the two, but I think probably you're thinking of Alan Partridge right now.
2: Well, my my favorite comedy shows. Britain has come up with some great sitcoms. Um but probably the top tier, not a huge surprise I suppose, would yeah, would be Alan Probably on balance, I'd say Series One of I'm Alan Partridge is probably still the best thing he's ever done. Um I like the old ones, like Faulty Towers. Not so mad on that. If I watch it again, you know, it's still good, but it's a it's a phrase that people don't like much. But it's a, it hasn't aged. But I, I don't mean in a woke sense. I'm just talking about the the jokes. They don't because we've. Humor's got a bit more edge nowadays. I meant it in that sense. Yeah, I think there was a sweet spot in the 90s. I mean, I, I love things like Absolutely Fabulous. And it wasn't yeah. that there were any great lines or any, well, I suppose there were great lines or great stories. It was just something about the atmosphere of it. I liked One Foot in the Grave, because the thing about that was it wasn't about an old guy complaining. It was about how mad normal life is, suburban life, and how many strange things yeah. are going on all around you. But yeah the top yeah. tier probably uh, Blackadder Only falls north is yes minister and Alan, and obviously the office as well yeah
1: yeah Blackadder, the one about the one with Rowan Atkinson, who plays a character in, in there's different series, each series is in a different um historical period, mm. and essentially Blackadder is a normal person mm. sort of stuck in in a historical period, mm. and he's very cynical and self-interested he wants to basically kind of get as much power and money as he can Mm. but he's stuck in this sort of he's stuck within the historical context Uh, brilliant and all the other characters around him are idiots um you know just idiots from history Mm. um only fools and horses Yeah, of two working class brothers Mm. in the east end of london Um, And it's a lot of it's about class, like working class life Mm. and whether, you know, you can ever like become middle class if you're if you're working class and Mm. things like that. What were the other ones?
2: Uh, Well, yeah. Yes. Minister Alan Partridge and the office, I suppose they would be my top.
1: Right. Right. okay, okay. I, I feel slightly reluctant to start talking about Alan Partridge mm. now because it's like a thing that you, we can never resolve because mm. he's such a fascinating multi-dimensional character. Um, hmm. What's your favorite Alan Partridge moment or what's a, a moment, uh, uh, something that happens to Alan that you, that you like oh God. Uh, that you remember?
2: Oh man,
1: so <laughs> many. Uh, so, so listeners, just in case you don't know who we're talking about, I did do, I have done episodes about Alan Partridge before. Some of you will remember. I did six episodes about Alan Partridge. He's a comedy character. He's played by Steve Coogan, a brilliant actor, comedian. And Alan uh, used to be the, 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 this fictional character. Basically, he used to be a sports presenter uh, on a fictional news program called The Day to Day, and then. Um, He was such a great character that they decided to make more shows with him. Mm. And Steve Coogan plays him so convincingly um, that uh, they decided there was a lot more they could do with the character. So they they decided they would make a show about his everyday life. And so we sort of follow Alan Partridge through his everyday life. This became uh, the show called I'm Alan Partridge. And we see him. He's been his wife has left him. She's thrown him out of the house. He's living in a sort of roadside travel tavern mm. or a hotel a motel by the side of the road um and he's he he's struggling to get a second series of his television show mm. after his first one ended in catastrophe and when he shot a man dead live on television yeah. Yeah. <laughs> accidentally killed someone on tv that's not funny but somehow when alan does it it is mm. uh it's part of the mystery of alan partridge that he can do these terrible terrible things and it's just brilliant comedy Mm. and so he's yeah he's kind of lost in his life and he's struggling to become relevant again he desperately wants to have a second series on the bbc but no one no one's interested and uh yeah he's um he's living in a a roadside hotel and this is basically like a a tv presenter who thinks what is it he's he's a he's a sort of a a d grade uh broadcaster Mm. who who thinks he's an a grade broadcaster yeah
2: yeah basically yeah
1: yeah he doesn't know he doesn't realize who he is he thinks he's a lot bigger and better than he actually is and he's kind of willing to do anything to be that Mm. a-grade broadcaster Um, and he's selfish and horrible but also somehow strangely sympathetic as a character like Mm. we we relate to him and we we're compelled by him and we I, i like alan actually more and more
2: yeah, he's you loosened. Know if that up. means I'm getting older. No, he's loosened up. That's the thing around 2010 where they rebooted it, where it seemed like it might be the end of it. They got these, these two Gibbons guys called Gibbons, Gibbons brothers. They didn't get two Gibbons. To- no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but-
1: They're called Gibbons, the Gibbons brothers. Yeah. yeah. They write the show now. Yeah. But
2: I was thinking about this. Why, why is it so good? And obviously it's the lines and the acting and everything. But I think the thing is if he was just stupid maybe it wouldn't be that funny, but he has actually, I listened to, uh, Coogan and Amando Iannucci doing the commentary over, over I'm series one. And at some point they said, the thing about it is that Alan has got talent. You know, he can, he can go in front of a radio mic and talk, even if it's total bollocks, yeah. he can, he has got the ability to talk. And also he's, he's quite quick witted as well. So when someone, um, tries to stitch him up or ridicule him. Occasionally, he can turn the tables. And I think if he wasn't talented a little bit, then it wouldn't work as well. But it's yeah. the same with if you think of The Office. David Brent's an idiot, yeah, but he has got quite a lot of good lines and funny comedic references that obviously Ricky Gervais introduced in there. So I think, I think that's the edge, yeah.
1: Yeah, both David Brent from The Office and Alan Partridge, yeah, they're people who... If you spent let's say fifteen to twenty minutes in their company, you might think they were brilliant and great. Mm-hmm. You might think David Brent was a really inspirational manager mm-hmm. <laughs> who who had created a really good atmosphere in the office and he was like you know a really nice, reasonable person who cares about the uh, uh, the, the good uh, good vibes in the in the office and stuff and then but you know if you spend more time. You realise that he's like, um, uh, what's the word for it? He's, he just wants people's attention. He just wants people mm-hmm. to like him. He's actually a really bad manager. Mm-hmm. He doesn't help the the business operate well. He just is an attention seeker, and he doesn't care about anyone else except for himself. And it's a similar thing with with Partridge. You could spend twenty minutes in his company. I'd I'd like to have a pint, one pint, mm. with Alan Partridge. But after that, it would be too much, you know. If you, if and if you got into a friendship with him, at some point he would betray you. He'd stab you in the back. He'd do something to destroy. You know, he would betray the friendship in some way, and you'd 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 regret being his friend eventually. Right, right. You know, I could I could, I could maybe go for a walk with him, mm. you know. But then then I'd be like, all right, that's enough, Alan, for for a while.
2: You know. Yeah, it's a bit too much after a while. Yeah, there was one moment actually that I wanted to to mention. Uh, because it's partly linked with something that we've talked about with meditation, and everything, but it's more of a relaxation tape. It's from Alan and Partridge series one. He decides he, you know, he wants to relax, and he's made his own relaxation tape, and he's going to listen back to it. You know, and it's all stuff like it. Imagine you're on a beach, and the bit I remember is going, imagine the waves licking at your feet, and it, and you, <laughs> you get so much character insight. It's a number one that Alan can't relax because he keeps getting up and straightening his shoes and things like that and uh, yeah
1: and he, says, he can't relax because that things aren't quite right in the room he's lying down he's stressed out he's having a bad moment in his day and he's decided he's going to try and relax and so he plays his own meditation yeah. tape uh, <laughs> and uh but he, even that doesn't work because as you say like he's not satisfied because he's you know the the fact his shoes aren't aren't sitting straight on the floor he has to get up quickly and straighten the shoes and then he has to get up and straighten the curtain and and these things yeah the
2: moment the moment is when he he just finally goes oh shut up and just turns the tape off but it's alan (laughs) getting an insight into what alan's actually like he's alan being annoyed by himself i thought that was yeah that was a really good choice
3: welcome to tape two of let go with alan partridge (laughs) A sequence of easy exercises to relieve stress enhanced by the tropical music of the panpipes first find a quiet place to recline a bed or a big chair I want you to imagine you're lying on the beach divested of all the trappings of the 20th century no mobile phone batteries out of your pager you're all alone, the waves gently licking at your feet your bark trunk soaking up the water like a sponge. <laughs> Your head loosens from the torso and bobs into the distance. Remember the breathing techniques from tape one. Please relax. I can't emphasize that enough. All of us experience stress, whether you're a heart surgeon making vital incisions, or just Dave blogs queuing for a rail ticket behind a man who's buying a travel pass, which involves photographs, scissors, forms being filled in, and his access won't wipe. You, you get the picture. But stress like this just won't go away, and it has to be combated. Okay. Sod off. Yeah. Uh, fascinating character. Really
2: fascinating, yeah. We'll do something about it. Definitely. Yeah, we should. And do. then, yes, minister. Yeah. Really, just circling back to what we were saying earlier. Really, it just shows you how everyone does conspire in
1: Westminster. In- yeah, the show is called Yes Minister, mm. and it's
2: about. It's
1: it's from the nineteen eighties or seventies. Yeah, late like seventies
2: to mid eighties. Yeah, because it was yes, prime yeah. minister as well. So he became prime minister.
1: Right. It's a it's a it's a comedy show about um, a a member of parliament. Uh, a minister in 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 the government mm. and you get to see life and in 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 Westminster mm. um and the main characters are the the mp and his uh private his permanent secretary
2: civil servant yeah top civil, civil
1: servant, servant mm. his a civil servant and it's you know we see who is actually in control of who the mm. civil servant seems to be the one who's actually in control mm. and it but yeah as you say it actually shows us what really goes on mm. in government?
2: It seems like to sort of went over everybody's head. You know, they just said, oh, oh, that's a fun comedy, you know. And even the writers are saying, Oh, we had, um, advisors who were real politicians. Yeah. It's a lot to go into, but I did a show about that. Uh, it's one of my yeah. back episodes. So I was quite pleased with.
1: Listeners, you should listen to, the, to those Yes Minister episodes because yes, it's just very interesting. First of all, it, it tells you lots of things about the show yeah. and it's a great show. You can find lots of those videos, uh, episodes on, online. Uh-huh. And so it's a good introduction to the show if you're looking for an interesting bit of British comedy to, to watch that's really well written. Uh-huh then that's a good one. But also, yeah, the, there's wider things that it shows us about the way that government works. Mm-hmm. And this comedy show, it's interesting that the comedy can kind of reveal the truth, but it, it, it somehow, because it's comedy, I mean, unsurprisingly, people don't take it seriously, mm. you know, but a comedy show can, a satire like that can just really lay things bare and show us really what's going on. But it didn't seem to, you know, make that many changes um, because it's comedy.
2: Yeah, and of course because the people that that were responsible for it, yeah, they are really part of the establishment. And I don't think they. There's a funny thing that happens if you take um, a show like Have I Got News for You or a a newspaper called Private Eye, both of whom, both of which involve Ian Hislop. He he obviously knows what's going on, or a lot of what's going on. And that it's not what we're being told, but then he will, he will put, you know, people with tinfoil hats in, in private eye. Yeah. He, they can't make that divide because maybe they don't really want anything to change. So you have to wonder about their motives for making the show, but I suppose they're just looking to make a successful comedy show on one level. But, uh, I think you can learn a lot from that show. Definitely.
1: You yeah. Know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Finally Anthony this really big heavy question at the end for this yeah. lighthearted conversation that we are having uh, the final topic that you talk about sometimes is is uh, happiness or in fact you've done you did a couple of episodes i think called the art of happiness Yeah, is that three right
2: three part in fact yes yeah.
1: three part episode called the art of happiness
2: right what's the art <laughs> of happiness then Anthony
1: uh, i can tell you because you're obviously so happy um, <laughs> you've worked it out God, um this is the worst time because i'm really flagging now but <laughs> okay well we'll keep it brief we'll, yeah you, you're tired i'm sorry to have kept
2: you for so long that's all right um well there is a school of thought that says the uh, the key to happiness is low expectations um <laughs> which sounds a bit cynical yeah. but uh, i think well obviously there's um practical things you know having good relationships with your family and having a core of good friends who you can tell the truth to. I think that is one of the keys having people around who you can be yourself with and who will tell you the truth and who you can tell the truth to because there's so much, you know, BS in this world where we're just surrounded by it everywhere that, uh, I think it's much more stressful to not live authentically. So I mean, All these things have become cliches now but i think they're all perfectly true just trying to be yourself try and find a job which is some reflection of you as a person so you don't have to act all day i think maybe that's the key just trying to be as authentic as you can for as many hours of the day um i think another thing um go back to meditation again is living just being in the moment because i don't know about you but i i torture myself with lists You know, obviously we've got a few tasks to do each week, each week, but then I always seem to fill any potential free time with tasks that I have to do. And I think that creates a lot of stress. So I think trying to live as freely as possible, get what you need to get, what you need to do, uh, done, but, uh, try and, I don't know. Yeah. Live authentically, obviously try and eat, eat decent food and drink lots of fresh water if you can you know, sort your physical out. With that, yeah. I'm going to turn it over to you because I'm hugging well,
1: now. <laughs> I would just add as well, having read some of the Darren Brown book, which is called Happy, mm. where he explores this very question. Mm. Uh, also, it's about accepting that you're not going to be happy a lot of the time or, mm. or that you're not going to be happy all the time. Mm. That's the thing. A lot of people, there's there, there is this sort of, Uh, approach to this which is like positive first of all positive thinking Mm. That you just like imagine the thing you want picture yourself in the you know on some big expensive boat with a rich lifestyle and it will materialize well there's Mm. that's kind of there's no evidence to suggest that that your brain will somehow magically create the events you know and it's and that in fact is Dangerous because if you project this version of what you want mm. and then you find it doesn't happen mm. you're going to be really disappointed mm. um, instead it's more it's probably better to have the stoic approach, which is to understand that t- to an extent there will be times when you're unhappy and times when you suffer mm. you know and there's there's no way of escaping that, and if you get that into perspective, mm. you know then perhaps you'll be less easily shocked or surprised when things don't work out in the idealistic way that, you, mm. that you've been sort of dreaming of, that it's more realistic to, to ex- instead accept certain things. Yeah. Once you accept certain things, like certain, you know, that things are not gonna go right, things are not always gonna go the way that we've been led to believe in all the films that we've watched. Mm. There won't necessarily be a happy ending. Mm. You know, and, and so you've got to try and appreciate the things that you have, Mm. um, and yeah, and live in the moment and enjoy, you know, take time to kind of like stop and enjoy the things that you have, um, you know, in front of you. Um, yeah, I think we've, I think it's probably all we can say because you're, you're, you're exhausted because of COVID Mm. and we've, we've been talking for an hour and 40 minutes and, uh, I really need the toilet. (laughs) I don't know about you. (laughs) I
2: haven't been drinking water. No, Uh, but yeah, be authentic, be realistic as well. Um, I did a show about how um, being cynical or sceptical isn't always bad, because you do need to be realistic about your life as well. You know, which doesn't mean you know just being negative. It's not quite the same thing. But yeah, and try and experience every moment of the day if you can. Which sounds. Sounds strange to say that, but I think a lot of us sleepwalk through the day. Try and just be alive to every moment, even if it's not a good moment. Be alive yeah. to it, you know, make the most of it, because a, a day can be very long, you know, or a day can just whiz by if you're not paying attention to anything. So yeah, yeah. be mindful. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: some things yeah. are just, some things are, uh, you know, like going back to David Blaine, sitting in a plastic box, um, hanging above... Uh, the streets of London at Tower Bridge. Yeah, he enjoyed the sun coming up yeah. and seeing the uh, smile on a, on a kid's face.
2: Probably watched yeah. the sun properly as well, instead of just going, Oh, yeah, it's the sun, it's coming up. He probably watched it intensely. And we've all done yeah. that we've been on holiday and stuff. And uh, you know, we're either, we could be lying on the beach or we could be in the mountains. And we suddenly start to observe nature. And how miraculous it is, and actually look at it properly. You know, I have this great memory of, uh, I think I was in, uh, I think I was in Lao actually. And I was sitting in a deck chair. And uh, like I, said, I do have problems relaxing and never properly relaxed. And I just remember sitting in this deck chair for hours and hours and just gazing out at the sea and gazing out at the sun, like I said, the sun coming down. And it was just beautiful. And it's it's there. And it's all these things are more or less free as well, you know. Okay, yeah. you have to go on holiday. <laughs> you know what I mean. You can go to your local park or whatever.
1: Yeah, just yeah, watch. Yeah.
2: I like just watching people or you know enjoying themselves. It's
1: it's very interesting how social conventions sometimes can make it hard for us to do those things mm. because we feel like we're going to be weird or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I was on holiday last week, as I said before, um, at the seaside, and I saw quite a lot of people fishing. Mm. And there was one guy, so we were having lunch uh, in this sort of restaurant in front of the the sea. And there was a guy who'd set up his fishing rod and a chair. He set the fishing rod up and he sat in the chair and he just sat there for ages. He sat there all throughout our our lunch. We went for a walk. We came back. He was still sitting there. Mm. Right. Now, obviously, he's fishing, but he didn't catch anything. Right. There was no moment. And throughout any of it, where it was like, whoa, a fish! You know, we had to try and get the pull the fish in. Mm-hmm. So essentially, he's just sitting on the beach and just look, looking at the water, mm-hmm. looking at the ripples of the water. And I, I've, I understand it's wonderful. I've never done that. I've never done fishing, but mm-hmm. apparently it's absolutely fantastic. You know, you really absorb the... You just take the time to really appreciate... The surroundings, like the movement of the water, you sort of notice things that you don't normally notice. Um, and I just thought, well, like he could have just put a chair down and just sat at the, he just sat there.
4: Mm.
1: But no, he, instead, it's like the act of fishing which allows him mm. to sit and just appreciate this place. Mm. But if he just, if he was just a guy, like the, some people do it, they stand in the river, you know, they stand sort of with their. They're the sort of uh thigh deep in the water mm. and stand there for ages mm. but if you're just a guy standing in a river without a fishing rod just standing there appreciating nature then people are going to think you're a crazy person yeah. right like there he is standing in the river again but if you're holding a fishing rod that makes it okay yeah. doesn't it
2: <laughs> yeah well yeah. i think yeah society has gone that way that everything is working against that idea of just relaxing and uh you know just enjoying things like that yeah it all just seems so strange you know because we're just conditioned to think the busy state is is, is the yeah. normal one
1: yeah yeah okay all Right. all right well anthony thanks a You're lot welcome. obviously we've just been through some really sort of diverse things quite heavy things in quite a quick way really mm. I, I know this has been f- over an hour and a half mm. uh but um uh, I think these are probably subjects that deserve to be dealt with in a, in a um, you know, in a more considered way. And you have done that in your show. So listeners, mm-hmm. you can check out Anthony's podcast, Life and Life Only, if you want to hear his perhaps more uh,
2: measured or um, less less ill uh, insights.
1: <laughs> yeah. Times when he was able to talk about these things in in a, in a planned way when he was in slightly better physical yes, condition. Yes. Uh, but thanks, Anthony. Thanks for, for giving us your time.
2: You're very welcome. My other podcast, if you don't mind. Glass Onion on John Lennon. Um, it's obviously about John Lennon. More than four years now. and then- it's, it's really
1: good, listeners. It's really good. I love the way that you go into such detail about these aspects of John Lennon's life. I mean, yeah. as a, as a Beatles fan, I just love that. I love listening to Beatles podcasts. Mm. I was listening to something about the Beatles just before doing this. Mm. I just love listening to pe- other people who are able to talk about this subject in a way that I can't. Right? You know, like I, I I'm not able to be so uh, coherent and clear about it. Hmm. So it's it's a real pleasure for me to listen to you talking about John Lennon and exploring these aspects of his life in a very coherent, sort of lucid way. Yeah. It's, it's a really good podcast. Thank you very
2: much. Yeah. And then there's film Gold. gets a bit neglected, but we uh, just put out Sorcerer, as I said. That went out on video um, in April. Yeah. Well, last yeah, week, so... early May. Yeah, When's this yeah. coming out, by the way? Do we know? When, when are people so, watching this? Uh... Uh, Anthony, I'm afraid this is going to come out
1: potentially in August. August. I know because uh, I've been talking about this on the podcast. I'm, I'm trapped in a time loop mm-hmm. where I've done so many episodes because, because my wife's having a baby in, in, in a few weeks now. So I've had to, I've, i I decided blimey. I would produce as many con- as many episodes as I could, so that then I could just like take two months off, maybe or even a month off or something, mm-hmm. um, and so I'd have enough episodes in um, you know uh, already recorded that I could publish. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, this one is like all the way at the end of the queue, so it's probably going to come out in, in August.
2: Oh, blimey! Yeah. So my my COVID will be, just be a memory.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, hopefully all of the things we've said are still going to be relevant and that AI hasn't become sentient and taken over the world uh, by that point. Uh, So hopefully people are still able to, to listen to this and it all makes sense. Yeah, but thanks a lot. All right, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. So here we are, listeners, at the end of yet another episode of this podcast. Are you okay? You're still here. You're still with me. That's great. I'm glad to know that you're still listening. I uh, just want to say thanks again to Anthony for, uh, for doing that, especially since um, he had just recovered from COVID. He seemed to be a little bit sort of worse for wear um, after having had uh, a nasty dose of COVID. Uh, But um, it was good of him to, you know, to do the whole thing like that and to let me ask him all those questions and to an extent put him on the spot and ask him to talk about things which, uh, when he talked about them in episodes of his podcast, he had had a lot more time to prepare himself. Uh, uh, But yeah, we just had a, you know, just basically was like, right, talk about this. Now talk about this. Now talk about this. So Anyway, listeners, I hope you appreciated it. Um, I feel like, to some extent, some of those things, we didn't really give them the full treatment that they should have been given, if you know what I mean. I, you heard me say a few times, you know, uh, hopefully we can do more than just scratch the surface of these topics. I think we did go a little bit deeper than that. But anyway, there's always, you know, we, you know, I, I don't know who it was who said this. I don't know which artist uh, who said this. Uh, not that not that necessarily a podcast is is like a work of art, but it's certainly a thing you work on. But some artists said, I think, once the art or a piece of work is never finished, it's just abandoned. You just get to the point where you can't really do much more with it, and then you just kind of let it go. Um, that certainly makes sense for a painter or something, right? You can imagine someone slaving away over a painting, just trying to perfect it, and until they realise, until the artist realises that it'll never be, um, perfect and it'll never be finished. And they just have to let that work go. That has to be taken. It has to be sold. It has to be exhibited or or shown or whatever it's. So a, a piece of work is never finished. It's just abandoned. Um, not that I'm comparing an episode of this podcast to some kind of great work of art or anything, but anyway, it's similar sentiment that sometimes you've got to just decide. Okay, I think that's probably as that's that's the best we're going to do under the circumstances. Um, so yeah, I want I want you know I always want to try to get as much insight as I can, or failing insight, entertainment value, or you know something. It's always in episodes of this show. I always want to try to get something good. It's either some level of meaningful insight, some level of entertainment value, uh, or uh, engagement of some kind, you know, whether it's a story that grips you from the start to the finish, a series of funny anecdotes, uh, some jokes, uh, just some lively conversation between people who've got a really good uh, dynamic together, whatever it is that's going to somehow engage you in the listening process this is what i'm aiming for because ultimately you know languages are learned best when you are really engaged with with them on a meaningful level that's the kind of overall idea which is great you know that's that's so inspiring to me as a as an english teacher and as a content creator for for language learners that oh yeah, this is wonderful. So people learn languages best when they find it really inspiring and engaging and on a sort of personal, meaningful level. That's that's the sweet spot. Brilliant. That means that I should try to make content which is really personal and uh, insightful or funny or entertaining or something. So brilliant. You know, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, so yeah, listen to Anthony's podcast, Life and Life Only, if you want sort of more detailed... Um, um, comments about all the things that you've heard us talk about. Um, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Life and life only. Just look for it. You'll find um, links in the description uh, for this episode wherever you you listen to this, whichever podcast app you choose to listen to, um, whichever podcast app you choose to listen on. Um, because you, you, you don't listen to an app, do you? You listen to a podcast, but you listen to a podcast on an app. Yeah, all right. Um, okay, I think that um, just to end this, I'm going to pick up the guitar and play something. Because, uh, you know, re- when was it? Episode 830. I played the guitar again for the first time in something like a year, and it was quite nice. I hope that people liked it. I know that one person in particular really liked it. In fact, I've got a couple of comments saying, oh, it was nice to hear you playing the guitar again. So for those two people, um, I'm going to do it again. Or three people, really, because I, because this is nice for me too, if I get it right. So um, let's see. I have to try and make sure that I've got the microphones positioned well, because I want I want to pick up the guitar. I don't want to pick up the guitar too much, because if I play something wrong then that's going to be obvious. But at the same time, I do want you to be able to hear what I'm playing. Uh, so let me just set this up properly and make sure the guitar's in tune. Got to tune the guitar again. Bear with me, everyone. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to do a song by Blur. Um, Blur, yeah, the British band. Probably most famous in the 90s, but they're they're back again they've reformed and they're on tour again and I saw an interview with them and it was nice to, it was just nice to see them back you know they're kind of like my generation a band from when I was in my 20s or in my when I was in my teens and my 20s so sort of definitely my generation and it's it was nice to see them back interesting to see them see them make a return and it made me think of some of their songs And they've got some really good songs in their catalogue. And so the one I'm going to do is called um, Coffee and TV. And it's by the guitarist Graham Coxon. By the guitarist Graham Coxon. It's got some good lyrics. You know, it's sort of, to some extent, the lyrics relate to some of the things that we talked about. (laughs) Right, I think this is probably okay. Maybe turn the guitar down a bit. All right, I hope I can do this justice, as always. But yeah, so the lyrics are about... It's about sort of, I guess, social awkwardness, but also about feeling socially alienated. I shouldn't really um, try to interpret the lyrics too much and just let the lyrics speak for themselves. Uh- but it's the, the first few lines are great, and there's a really good little joke in there. The first line is, do you feel like a chain store? Do you feel like a chain store? Do you know what a chain store is? It's a kind of a, a, a shop, um, but there's loads of them. You know, like the typical shops where you find... It's the sort of shop that you find you find one in every town in the country... They've got one of these. And it could be something like the sort of shop where, you you know, like IKEA, not to not to give them any more publicity than they need, but other shops of that nature, the sort of shops where you go to buy furniture or shops where you go to buy um, gardening equipment or even shops where you go to buy, you know, clothing and stuff like that. Chain stores. So do you feel like a chain store? How can you feel like a chain store? Well... Do you feel like a chain store practically flawed? Which is a it's a nice funny joke and the it's a good line, good first line for a song. Practically flawed. So that's the double meaning of that. Is if you are practically flawed, that would be F L A W E D, flawed in terms of your personality. So if you're flawed, it means you have lots of flaws. There are lots of imperfections or problems in your personality. I'm sure we all feel like that sometimes. So do you feel like a chain store practically flawed but also practically f- practically flawed can also mean that the floor in a chain store is very practical. It's made of a solid material and easy to clean um, doesn't break easily so I don't know it's just a, it's an odd first line to have in a pop song but I quite like that it's a joke do you feel like a chain store practically flawed so on one hand you have like basically you have personality issues or on the other hand like a chain store the floor is very sort of um, practical oh, I don't know I, dis- I dissected the frog and the frog died, didn't I? That's right. Do you know that quote? Explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You can learn something from it, but the frog dies in the process. I think I probably killed that frog. Anyway, I'm going sh- to shut up now in order to actually just do the song. Okay. By the way, if you don't really want to hear me sing, then you can consider the episode to be finished. Okay? There you go. Bye, 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 bye. You see, I did bye, bye, bye. So if you want to check out now, that's fine by me. But if you want to hang out and listen to the words of this song, then be my guest, okay? Here we go.
4: Do you feel like a chain store? Practically flawed. One of many zeros, Kicked around and bored Your ears are full but you're empty Holding out your heart To people who never really Care who you are So give me coffee and TV Easily I've seen so much, I'm going blind and I'm brain dead virtually Sociability is hard enough for me Take me away from this big bad world and agree to marry me So we can start over again Do you go to the country? isn't very far. There's people there who will hurt you because of who you are. Your ears are full of their language. There's wisdom there, you're sure. Until the words start slurring and you can't find the door. So give me coffee and TV. I've seen so much I'm going blind And I'm brain dead virtually Sociability Is hard enough for me Take me away from this big bad world And agree to marry me So we can start over again TV Easily I've seen so much I'm going blind And I'm brain dead Virtually Sociability It's hard enough For me Take me away From this big bad world And agree to marry me So we can Start over again can start over again. We can start over again. We can start over again. We can start over again.
1: All right, there you go. All right, listeners, I think that that's probably enough for this episode. I don't want to make it exceedingly long, um, but there you go. If you feel like a chain store sometimes, if you feel practically flawed, then, you know, you're not the only one. Okay, thanks so much for listening. I'll speak to you again soon. But for now, it's just time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.